Many experts believe we have to make significant strides in becoming a carbon neutral planet by 2030 if we want to reverse the impacts of climate change. This podcast exists to help everyday people reduce their carbon footprint in a practical way and become a part of the solution. It's time to rise up and join the carbon neutral movement. This is the Carbon Neutral Podcast. Welcome back to the Carbon Neutral Podcast. Today's episode is around financial institutions' impact on climate change. And today's episode is going to be a little different, and I want to touch on that right off the top of the episode. First off, I wanted to apologize for missing last week's episode and kind of also warn you that I did not get a lot of great sleep last night. So I'm sorry if it comes off that I'm sounding a little tired or sluggish. I'm going to do the best I can to keep this podcast upbeat. And we're changing it, as I just mentioned. So typically what I do is I record these podcast episodes in a way where these are kind of structured like a YouTube video because that's the form of content that I used to create. And what I mean by that is I would create these pretty in-depth outlines and then I would talk over these outlines. And it may still be how I do the episodes, but... I want to try something a little different and bear with me. Obviously, this is the, what, fifth or sixth episode of this podcast. So I just don't want to get drilled into one style of episode or one style of making content and kind of see what sounds better. So today I'm going to be doing a little bit more riffing. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Before I get into that, actually, I wanted to tell you why I missed last week's episode. So We missed the episode. I mean, it was Super Bowl Sunday, so that was, I guess, sort of a part of it. But really, it was uh, all of Saturday we spent uh, applying for an apartment in Portland. And, I mean, it didn't take the whole day, but it really ruined the time I would have had to, you know, create the outline that I needed. So I didn't want to just rush it and throw it out. But, yeah, we applied for an apartment in Portland, and we got it. So... We're going up in March, and we're going on the 12th to check out the apartment, and then we're probably going to take it over in mid-April. It's not 100% set in stone. We're going to look at a couple of different other places up there because there were a few others that we were considering. The one that we're currently locked in is in a great location. It's a LEED certified gold building, which is really, really awesome. I believe that they do have uh, composting, which is fantastic. There's just certain things that I'm going to be talking about, I'm sure, on the podcast in the coming months regarding, you know, the, the new apartment. So with that said, there could be slight tweaks and releases. I wouldn't say I will be putting them out at different times of the week. If anything, I'd probably be skipping a few weeks. And I'll try my best to be as transparent and, and let you guys know when that's going to be happening I want to be as consistent as possible, but I also realistically will have some pretty difficult time, uh, you know, creating some content in the next few months. And the reason that is, is because I record and do all of my research and all of my free time on the weekends. So that said, I just wanted to be upfront and honest with you guys. Now, kind of getting back to this whole notion of recording a little differently today. What I want to do is try to let these points breathe a little bit, and that's something that I noticed. I'm going to get into the demographics of the podcast in a second here, but I want to make sure that 
if I'm going to be going on the, you know, this heavy outline approach that I'm still doing more of this just casual talking. And this is what a podcast is all about is more just having a conversation and feeling like you get to know me as a host. And I talked in the introduction episode about, you know, trying to be related, relatable to you guys in a sense of whether it's a, we're talking about carbon offsets, right? I could have gone a little bit more into personal, you know, stories and trying to relate it to you guys. And I think that just comes with time. So I, I appreciate you guys for bearing with me and uh, kind of letting me experiment, you know, experiment, um, experiment, sorry, with the episode. And I'm going to leave things like that in here for this podcast specifically. Uh, if I mess up over my words, what I typically do is I just edit it all out. So I'd be curious if you guys want to leave me a voicemail, feel free to do so. I'd be curious to see which approach you guys prefer. But today we're going to be talking uh, about financial institutions, so mainly banks, and how they impact climate change. And we're going to go over two reports. And these reports are really beefy reports. Obviously, we're not going to have the time to, you know, go into every little detail. But I want to make sure that it's casual. And we're just kind of going through it like, you were sitting here with me and we're just having a conversation and I'm telling you what I've seen and what I'm learning. So that's what we're going to be doing. Now, with that said, I did want to shout out everyone who's been listening. We've had 200 downloads of the podcast, which I know doesn't sound large, but to me, that's a big deal. And I think this is really, really, uh, you know, motivating for me to see that these numbers are growing over time. And obviously we've only been doing this for what like a month and maybe a few weeks so maybe a month and a half in total but what I found really interesting I look at the analytics pretty frequently not to the point where I'm like feeling like I need to obsess over it but I just am curious as to who's listening and so I host my podcast with Anchor which distributes it for those of you that want to start a podcast I'd highly recommend using Anchor really easy way to uh, set up a podcast for free and Anchor will distribute it. For those of you that don't know how a podcast distribution works, distributes it to Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, and all the different other applications that you may be listening to. So some of these I've never actually listened to myself. Like I've never used these platforms myself, but um, the majority of these analytics, as far as I understand, come from Spotify because Anchor is owned by Spotify. So that's kind of why I wanted to tell you that. But with the demographics that I have, here's an interesting stat that I am kind of impressed with, which is that 50% of my audience is from the United States. And the rem- the rest of the audience the- is made up of about 18 different countries. So it's really, really cool to see. So 50% from the United States doesn't surprise me that United Kingdom is 15% and second in place. Then we have Canada. I'm just going to name off the rest because I think it's really, really cool. We have Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand, France, Mexico, Germany, Sweden, Netherlands, Brazil, Costa Rica, Norway, Latvia, Israel, Japan, Sri Lanka, and Czech Republic. And I will say, if your country hasn't been listed here because maybe I don't have that data great chance to like I said leave a recording so I can see you know where you're from and get to know you guys I want to know the audience and that's why I'm trying this new format is to hopefully connect with you guys a little bit more so with that said 
Uh, let's go ahead and get into the first segment, as we always do, which is this week's climate news. And naturally, we kind of have a little bit of catch up to do because we missed last week's episode. So I'm going to talk about I have a, a good amount of uh, topics here. I don't know how in detail I want to get into each of them, but I think some of them are going to be interesting. So first one is a uh, article from The Guardian. And it's predictions around uh, trends forecasting. So Emily Siegel is the one that uh, wrote this article. Some of these are more related to this podcast than others, so I'm not going to read all 20 of them naturally. Um, But let's go ahead and get into it. So first thing that I see here that's relatable to the podcast is the fourth prediction, and it's about carbon labeling for consumer goods. Basically... Uh, you know, listing a carbon exponential related to various products on their packaging and in their marketing materials, uh, ultimately making this a norm. So that way people can justify higher prices for more carbon responsible items. So basically it's similar to, you know, shopping eco-conscious brands and justifying the cost naturally. Uh, you'll pay a little bit more for a premium product or a product that you know sort of aligns with your values. So that would be a really cool, interesting additional label or whatever you want to call it. That's really cool. Uh, next, they have uh, the sixth point, which is climate migration. So climate crisis, this is the negative. Uh, climate crises will increase to force huge populations to relocate causing strain over resource allocation, border issues, culture, and the overall safety of millions. And, uh, yeah, I I definitely can see this happening. There's a lot of scientific research to back that this uh, prediction could happen, unfortunately. So it just simply means that there are going to be certain parts of the world that are going to become uninhabitable. And some of those could be some cities that you live in today and... uh, it's just important to kind of know that this could be coming. And, you know, there are certain cities that get more coverage. Some of the ones that come top of mind, uh, I think we actually talked about it in the 2030 podcast, now that I'm thinking back to it. New York was one of them. Um, Venice, Italy, uh, and then Paris were three that come to mind uh, as I'm kind of just thinking through where you might have to migrate from. So interesting topic. Hopefully we can be ahead of the curve here and not face some of the repercussions. I think that this article was interesting. Uh, If this is something that you guys want to hear more about, like predictions versus something that's more related to headlines in the news, you could definitely subscribe to the newsletter for articles more like that. Uh, Usually on this topic and in this you know, segment, we're going to cover things that are more related to time frames, meaning something that came out this week. But I thought that that one was really interesting. There was another one related to kind of summarizing things that we learned about climate change in 2020. So I'm going to go ahead and read off a couple of those things. All right. So this article comes from Clean Technica, and it's a, the top 10 things we learned about climate change in 2020. So I'm not going to cover all of them. Let's talk about a few of them, though. One is that tropical forests may have reached a peak uptake of carbon, and it goes on to say that land ecosystems currently draw down 30% of human CO2 emissions, and this is due to CO2 fertilization effect on plants. 
deforestation of the world's tropical forests is leveling off their carbon sink capacity. Uh, let's see here. So naturally, climate change will severely exacerbate the water crisis, and climate change can affect our mental health. This is interesting to kind of hear about. So it says cascading and compounding risks are contributing to anxiety and distress. According to new studies, blue and green space in urban settings should be promoted and conserved within urban planning policies, along with protecting ecosystems and biodiversity in natural environments for mental health, co-benefits, and providing community resilience. So that's very interesting that those two are sort of tied together. I guess it makes sense, I guess, for those of us that care most about climate change, but typically I feel like a mental health issue that I come across or hear most about isn't related to climate change. So I don't know. That's it's interesting. Let's see here. So the next thing they have is COVID-19 and how climate change demonstrate the need for a new social contract. So the pandemic has spotlighted inadequacies of both governments and international institutions to cope with transboundary risks, whether health related, environmental or otherwise. And then there's one other one that sort of relates to COVID-19, and this is the last one we'll cover in this topic. So it talks about economic stimulus focused primarily on growth will jeopardize achievement of the Paris Agreement. And it goes on to say a COVID-19 recovery strategy based on growth first and sustainability second is not likely to lead to the emission reduction needed to meet Paris goals. That's actually a really interesting topic. Definitely going to be something that we're going to see sort of trending. And I was thinking about this this weekend, actually, and I'm trying to shop more zero waste. The problem with shopping zero waste in a pandemic is I'll give you a really good example. If I want to buy, uh, you know, cheese, for example, um, whether it be regular or vegan, because I'm kind of up in the air as as to whether I want to go full vegan. I've been vegetarian for a little over two years, but either way I go. It's really difficult to buy cheese and uh, buy it in a way that's zero waste, right? And there's a lot of products that it, it's just more challenging to do, especially in a pandemic because of, you know, the cleanliness and you just don't want to – certain things are not going to be available to us, such as things like, uh, you know, bulk buying and purchasing. So – you can always do that online typically, but if you wanted to do it at a local store such as a Sprouts, it's not as available to you. And so, yeah, that'll be a really interesting trend. I think that we will definitely have more to say on, on that topic. So I thought that, that those two articles were interesting and kind of just generic. Let's go on to some things that have actually happened in the news. So first thing, the Tesla Model 2, which is going to be coming out, at some point, I, as far as I can tell, in 2021, it could be 2022. I'm not getting like a firm date on that, but this is going to be a Tesla that basically is $25,000, so it's going to be available uh, for most people. It's going to be in their price range, and it's going to be available globally, which is very interesting. Um, and speaking of Tesla, we do have an update from Elon Musk because he had that $100 million carbon capture pledge and so there was a couple of different news outlets that covered it so first off let's talk about the article that grist put out it 
is titled, There's a Lot More Than Elon Musk's $100 Million Writing on Carbon Removal. Talks about in late January, after briefly surpassing Jeff Bezos as the world's richest man, Elon Musk announced his latest venture. The Tesla CEO planned to donate $100 million or 0.05% of his net worth. It's funny they mentioned that towards a prize for the best carbon capture technology. So more details arrived, it said, on Monday, and this would have been, this article was posted on February 10th, so that would have been last Monday, and it was posted by the XPRIZE Foundation, an organization that holds competitions to drive innovation, and it said that Musk's is not backing the best carbon capture technology, but the best carbon dioxide removal technologies. Okay, so it says that the XPRIZE Foundation is asking contestants to demonstrate a working prototype for a carbon removal solution that can verifiably remove one ton of CO2 per day and then to prove that it has some potential to scale up to remove one billion times that amount. Winners will be chosen in 2025, so that's a really interesting note. There's a lot of time to work on this. Top prize will get half of the $100 million, with smaller amounts going to runners-up. So that's interesting and good to know that there's going to be multiple funds that come from this. I think that's really important, actually, because with many things, it might just be that the number one choice, for whatever reason, might have everything sort of figured out over the next few years and then hit a hurdle. And then, unfortunately, that $50 million, or if it had been the entire fund of $100 million, could all be for none. So it's good to see that they're going to be funding multiple. And we kind of touched on that, but $50 million, that's a lot of money. So hopefully the the number one uh, you know, prize winner will use that money wisely. So that's really exciting. I know that uh, there have been a lot of people that have been getting on Elon Musk's case as far as, you know, things like that, that note of how much he's spending and donating and how it's only one percent and that's common with all celebrities but i think it's great to see you know i don't see the point in trying to paint him into a negative light i i like that he's at least trying to do something right so let's go ahead and move on to the next story this one is huge news in my opinion and we're going to stick into the transportation as well so it says that brooklyn is getting the u.s first ev fast charging quote-unquote super hub and so this is actually uh, an article by Clean Technica, and it's by Tritium RTMV75 with Revel branding, a courtesy of Revel. And it says that we're thrilled to be partnering with Revel to install our first RTM75 chargers in the Americas. And this is Tritium's president speaking. Critical projects like this bring the convenience of DC fast charging to a vibrant city neighborhood like Brooklyn, the most populous borough in New York City. The e-mobility revolution is here, and this charging depot is a necessary step towards giving New Yorkers the confidence to make the switch to electric while reducing carbon emissions and improving air quality across the city. This is really, really cool. So let me find the piece here where it kind of talks about the specifics. It says that the first Superhub is going to be located in what is reportedly a historic Pfizer building. It was the company's first headquarters, apparently. More recently, it has been uh, 
a broader innovation hub that's been used. So the site was transformed by its owners, Acumen Capital Partners, and an ecosystem of small businesses and startups. And uh, so that's kind of an interesting little background as to where it's going to be. But more on the details around this. So let's find here. So it says the company Revel is putting 30 EV fast chargers into a super hub in Brooklyn. And it's a record-breaking facility. And the reason that this is is because it's the largest universal fast charging depot in North America. I mean, 30 chargers, think about that. That's pretty significant. That's more than like way more than a Costco, right? So it's going to be open to the public 24-7 and accessible to owners of any electrical vehicle brand. Something to note here is that the RTM 75 charging station can report a reportedly supply 100 miles of range in 20 minutes. So this DC fast charging, I mean, this is legit. This is really exciting. It says that they're going to be building it in, uh, obviously, this year. They're looking to have it come out. So I don't think there's a specific month that they, they mentioned. I think it's already off and running. So this is really, really exciting. Obviously, it's one city, but this is the step in the right direction. And I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing how that plays out. So really, really awesome. All right. In other news, let's talk about the next article. So we're going to be talking about Cummins Engine Company. And for those of you guys that don't know, they are a public company, uh, been around for over 100 years, and they distribute engines and filtration systems and power generation products. So... They announced something that's very interesting, actually. It's going to be, they're going to be powering North America's first commercial zero emissions ferry. And this ferry is going to be used to transport people. So this is really exciting. It's going to be a 70 foot, 75 passenger, high speed uh, ZEF is what they're calling it, which is zero emissions ferry for a planned future uh, fuel cell powered fleet, which is really, really exciting. I think that this is. Just more, uh, you know, technology to be excited about, of course. And I just thought I'd share that with you guys uh, pretty quickly. I want to move on to the next story now where Renew Economy talked about fossil fuel pollution. And unfortunately, it looks like Harvard researchers did a study to see how many people in the year of 2018 or potentially deceased because of fossil fuel pollution and it says that 8.7 million people in 2018 could have been uh, deceased from this issue which is double previous estimates in 2017 I would imagine so really alarming just to kind of continue to paint the urgency of what we're dealing with here now I want to talk about two more articles really quickly One, California's famous PCH Highway 1, I used to live on it actually, collapsed this week. And uh, that would have been, it looks like this article came out on February 6th, so that would have been two weeks ago. And it's expected that 23 miles of this road is going to have to be closed for months. So that's really, really sad. For those of you that don't know much about PCH, it's basically running across the coast and they had mudslides and that the mudslides actually uh, 
you know, crushed this 23 mile area and they have some pictures online. If you guys are interested, it's really, really scary. Honestly, I don't know much about if anybody was injured in this incident, but uh, naturally you, you know, you hope for the best. So I don't know. This is really, really fascinating that, uh, you know, you're, you're losing a significant road and hopefully as climate change continues to pick up, we don't lose these sort of like historical landmarks. It's just one that kind of hit close to home when I read this article. So now the last article I want to talk about is the only carbon capture plant in the U.S., which is based in Texas, was recently announced that it's going to be shutting down in June. And the reason that it's getting shut down is because of the cost of upkeep and the cost of keeping it running. So this is really unfortunate. Obviously, we're moving in the right direction overall, I think, in this space, but thought that this is a an important thing to kind of be on the same page about. So I wanted to bring this all to your attention. So with that said, we are going to transition into the main portion of this episode. But before we do that, let's get a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Aspiration. If this episode becomes enlightening for you, perhaps you're going to reconsider where you put your money. You've heard me mention Aspiration on previous episodes, but I wanted to tell you why I think they're a great option for you. Well, one, they don't fund fossil fuel projects. Like any bank, they are FDIC insured, but unlike their competitors, Aspiration is a certified B Corp and a part of 1% for the Planet, two of our other podcast sponsors. And something that may be important to you is having a bank that is easy to reach and easy to use. And I'm happy to say that their app is extremely easy to use. It actually has a 4.8 star review on the Apple Store. And I was able to set up my account in minutes and the support over the phone was fantastic. In fact, one of the reports that we're going to be going through today was provided by a customer support rep at Aspiration. They have no hidden fees, a $55,000 ATM network, and climate-friendly features like up to 10% cash back when you shop at socially conscious businesses, the ability to offset all gas purchases, and even a setting that allows you to round up your spending to plant trees. If you'd like to set up your account today, click the link in the show notes of this episode to get $50 after you spend your first $250 with Aspiration. Now, let's get back into the episode. So as I just mentioned in the ad read, we're going to be going over a report that was provided to me by a support rep at Aspiration. The report is called Banking on Climate Change Fossil Fuel Report. And so we're going to get into the details. It's a 116-page report, not much filler, quite honestly, and it goes into details around how big banks have been funding fossil fuel projects and sort of the implications that come from that. So there's an introduction section where they talk about a lot of different case studies. Then they get into, you know, some of the methodologies that we get an understanding of what you're about to get in. Then they talk about fossil fuel expansion, spotlight fossil fuels. Uh, so that way you can really get an understanding of what this fossil fuel projects, what is this all about? And then it sort of gets into the details, I guess you could say, of the different fossil fuel projects. Uh, types so things like tar sands oil arctic oil and gas offshore oil and gas fracked oil and gas coal mining coal power 
and liquefied natural gas. So there's sections for each of those, and then there's the appendices. So really, really interesting article. I want to actually talk about the executive summary here for a second. So I'm going to read a little bit of it. It says that financial companies are increasingly becoming recognized by their clients, shareholders, regulators, and the general public as climate actors with the responsibility to mitigate their climate impact. For the banks that are highlighted in this report, the last year has brought a groundswell of activism demanding banks cut their fossil fuel financing. And at the same time, they increasingly the extreme weather events that have further underscored the urgency of climate crisis. So in this article, it goes into the details of the biggest fossil fuel funding banks. So Chase, Wells Fargo, City, Bank of America, those are the top four banks. And then they have RBC, which is the biggest fossil fuel bank in Canada, and then MUFG in Japan, Barclays in Europe, and the Bank of China in China, of course, and then BBN or and then BNP in Paribas, which is the biggest European fossil bank in 2019. And then alongside that, they talk about Santander and CIBC seeing the biggest percentage and increase of fossil financing from 2018 to 2019. We will talk about Santander in a second, actually, or in the next segment, I should say. So with that said, you may or may not know that these companies are heavily financing these fossil fuel projects. And that's something that I think is super important for all of us to understand. And in the introduction, it says that over the past year, fossil financing has caught fire. The role of banks, money managers, and insurance companies as drivers of climate change via their fossil financing, investing, and insuring is garnishing unprecedented attention. And then it also goes on to say awareness is soaring in the private sector banks as well and that they're becoming carbon major factors as well. Uh, so it's not just these big public banks that are causing this uh, you know, funding of fossil fuel projects. The climate movement is spotlighting an urgent and growing problem since the adoption of the Paris Agreement in 2015. The 35 banks in the scope of the report have funded $2.7 trillion in lending and underwriting to fossil fuel industry, with an annual fossil financing increasing each and every year. J.P. Morgan Chase becoming the first bank to blow past the quarter-trillion-dollar mark in the post-Paris fossil financing with $269 billion between 2016 and 2019 that they're funding. And basically how they're funding that is with your money. Uh, so all the money that you're leaving in your saving account, they're using that money to fund these fossil fuel projects. Now, it does say that they're trying to bend the curve towards these financing and try to phase this out. And banks are having to adopt policies to restrict their fossil finance. And there are, you know, positive and accelerating good news that's coming of this. So 26 of the 35 global banks in the scope of this report are now putting policies in place to restrict coal finance and a growing minority now 16 are also restricting finance to some oil and gas sectors i said i was going to mention santander in the next uh, you know segment because we're going to be getting into the other side of things and i know that they are one of the banks that are trying to make a change so i think the the key thing that we should be focusing on here is yes, we're funding so much money into these things. And 
I mean, a part of it is we don't really have the infrastructure and a clear path yet for getting off of fossil fuels. So, uh, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to defend them, but for a big business, a Fortune 100, Fortune 25, because those are the ones that are really having the issues, it's not a surprise, and it shouldn't be a surprise to you, that they're going to be doing things like funding something that is proven, and they know that, uh, well, at least in their minds, they're being a positive contributor. Of course, that's not the case, but it makes sense why it's been this way for so long, but now it's finally time to sort of change that. Talks about how J.P. Morgan Chase was the world's worst banker climate chaos by a huge margin between 2016 and 2019, which we sort of just touched on. And it says that the total fossil financing fell slightly from 2017 to 2018, and then again from 2018 to 2019. The gap between Chase and the next worst bank was massive between 2018 and 2019. City and Bank of America were second and third worst in 2019, with Wells Fargo being the fourth after being the second worst fossil fuel bank in 2018. So, you know, I guess that's good. That's somewhat of a, an improvement, at least from one of them. It says that taking total financing over the past four years, Wells Fargo was second worst and then 36 behind, 36% behind Chase. So, they're clearly the worst. I have a credit card through Chase, and that's the other thing, right? Like when we think about banks, it's not just it's not just our money. It's also having credit cards. There's not a lot of green credit cards. It's so something I'm really trying to find is what what are some good green credit cards out there? I just don't think that that space is developed quite yet, and so I'll continue to do my research, and maybe we'll have an episode to talk about something like that, but yeah, it's unfortunately not a very proven out space and, you know, financing moves very slowly. So it's good to see, even though the Wells Fargo movement doesn't look that great over a course of four years, when you see something moving at all, um, and mind you, we're talking about the lesser of evils, at least something is being done, hopefully. It, I'm hoping that it's not just some sort of a coincidence that that's the case. And then later on in the report, we get into the policy acceleration. So we just went through the introduction a little bit. In this section, it goes further into phasing out fossil financing, requiring the adoption of restriction policies, and how they are increasingly trying to put these in place in response to the pressure to stop this climate crisis from the public from inside the financial system and from regulators and legislators. Most of the policies addresses coal, but a growing number are now starting to restrict oil and gas funding, especially for tar sands and Arctic oil and gas. Under the scoring system used in this report, that it says that banks with the best scores for their overall policies across the oil and gas sectors are all European, doesn't surprise me, led by Credit Agricole, RBS, and UniCredit. The leading non-European bank is Goldman Sachs, which is in 12th place of the 35. And yet even the banks with the strongest policy scores among their peers have a long way to go in order to align with businesses and the goals with the Paris Climate Agreement. Sort of goes into one of the things we touched on in the segment one, which is, you know, 
with a pandemic, where is this going to sort of fall? You know, where is this going to net out over the next five or so years with the way that the economy globally is going to be, uh, you know, it's continuing to be affected. Hopefully, we're going to be able to see improvements here. I, it's, it's really going to be telling. And so we as consumers or we as people that have financial institutions that we belong to are going to continue to have to think about where are we putting our money Obviously, with a bank, there is a certain level of comfort knowing you have your money in, in Chase, right? Or Wells Fargo or whatever the case, Bank of America, City. But I'm not one that's actually ever had a big bank. So I my first bank I ever used was USAA. And then I guess I could technically still be using it. I have a USAA account, but I switched over to simple bank and simple bank is basically like if you've heard of chime it's sort of an online bank and simple just closed and that's why i moved over to aspiration so we as consumers have that ability to sort of pick and choose where we want to go and i'm hoping that hearing this you know this report and i'm going to definitely be linking this report for you to read opens up your eyes to what's really going on and uh, I don't want to bore you with the details, which is sort of why we're skimming through this report. Mind you, it is 116 pages, as I've mentioned. It gets into the league table, which is basically the banking of... It's basically the list of the banks in the order of funding. So I'm going to read off some of the numbers here. This is where it gets really, really alarming. So we're going to talk about chase first so just the highest year that chase over the last four years well 2016 to 2019 are the numbers that we're talking about the most funded for chase was 70.6 billion dollars and the least funded was 63.9 the problem is is that from 2016 to 2017 they went from that 63.9 to 70 they brought it down in 2019 over two years down by six billion so overall that's 268 billion and then the next is uh wells fargo with 197 and then in third is city with 187 and then with 156 is bank of america so we've we definitely touched on some of these numbers to get to let's say number 10 which is scotia bank they're at $97.745 billion. Now, obviously, depending on which their fueling is worse than the other. So generally, you can't just sit here and say, though Chase has funded the most, that they're funding it to the worst projects for the climate. I think it's sort of arguable that certain projects are going to be worse than others. I think that's something that maybe we could talk about I, I don't have the time to really i didn't have the time to really research that to even speak to that but you know we we kind of have to take the overarching number of finance that they've pursued and it may not be as simple as chase is the worst and they are probably because of how much more they are than the next guys because they lead by 36 percent. but 
still, it's very, uh, it's very telling um, that you can finance these different projects. It's the same thing, I guess, with the carbon offsets, right? We we talked about financing different projects. Depending on the projects that you're funding, it could be better or worse. It could be, um, I mean, generally these are all going to be bad, but I just don't want you all to look at it as black and white as, you know, these banks are, this order, I guess, of financing is, is really who's the worst. So either way, quite honestly, I wouldn't want to be a part of any of these banks uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, let's move on to the next point here. So there's this really interesting chart in the report that talks about bank fossil fuel financing 2016 to 2019 versus total policy score out of 200. And it's really a chart you have to see visually. It says that JP Morgan Chase is by far the world's worst banker uh, with a score of 19.5 out of 20 possible points. Sorry, 19.5 out of 200 possible points, which is horrible. It looks like the number one on the list is, I would assume, European. It's Credit Agricole. And they have a score, what looks like somewhere in the ballpark of like 83, 82. So all of them realistically have terrible, terrible, terrible scores. Um, Credit Agricole has the, one of the strongest coal policies so far, but with $46 billion of fossil financing since the Paris Agreement, including in a large amount to companies expanding fossil fuels, the bank keeps profiting off of the destruction caused by oil and gas companies. All right, so, 20, so page 20 of the report, it says that they actually have an, a score of 82, and then the next score is RBS at 59.5. They're a British bank. And then, yeah, Citibank is the worst at nine and a half. So all in all, this is very interesting. There's a lot of stats, uh, gets into the methodology. I think overall what I wanted to get across in this segment is the amount that is being funded, the types of projects that are being funded. In this report, it gets into the details of each. And I'm going to let you guys go ahead and take a look at it. We might talk about it. I think that could actually... We can come back to this report and talk about the specifics of each of these. And uh, it would be really interesting, actually. So I'm going to leave this segment at this point just because we should move on to the next segment. And so in the next segment, you know, in the next segment, we're going to be talking about the collective commitment to climate action and uh, what this is and the report that they put out. So let's go ahead and move over to that segment. I wanted to take a second to thank you for listening, and I hope that this podcast is eye-opening and helpful for you. I created a weekly newsletter, which you can find in the show notes, to create a curation of articles that I don't have a chance to talk about on the podcast but I still think that they're going to be great topics for you to know about. These articles will specifically be about climate change and carbon neutrality, just as the podcast is. The newsletter will be written in TLDR form, or Too Long Don't Read. That way you can get a gist of what happened in the space, but I will also be linking the articles. That way you can click to see those as well. 
You will only get one email per week sent out every Friday, and it will contain between three to five summarized articles. That way you don't feel overwhelmed. This newsletter will be one of the easiest ways for you to stay in the know. So make sure to click in the show notes to sign up for the newsletter. All right. So in last segment, we talked about the financing of fossil fuel projects and the doom and gloom of the reality of this situation. However, there is a, I guess you could say, coalition, which is known as the Collective Commitment to Climate Action, that was created, I believe, in 2019. And it is a collection of, of banks, essentially, that have the ambitious goal of supporting the transition to a net-zero economy by 2050. It brings together a leadership group of 38 banks across six continents who have committed to align their portfolios with the global climate goal with the global climate goal to limit warning to well below 2 degrees striving for the 1.5 degrees Celsius. The CCCA banks representing more than $15 trillion in U.S. dollar assets are fast-tracking the commitment, all principles for responsible banking signatories that have been aligned to their business strategies with the temperature goals of the Paris Agreement. So in what was probably created in 2019, they created this coalition, and then they have this summary report that was put out in the at the end of 2020, and so I'm going to be linking this report as well. It's a 50-page report. It goes into, there's an executive summary as well, the activities of year one, which we're going to talk about, and then it goes into the year one and review. So they're going to assess the portfolio alignment, the financial projects and the financial products and services to support clients to reduce GHG emissions, exclusion policies, assessing climate-related transition risks, strategies to grow the customer base in specific sectors, and then client engagement and capacity-building programs. So this is sort of that flip uh, side of everything that's being done, and it's more of like the, the positive aspect. So CCCA signatories, I'm just going to read off some of the big names here. So Santander is a part of this, and... BBVA, which is technically, so I have Simple, like I had mentioned, and uh, Simple is basically a, a software that sits on top of BBVA, which is like a regional bank. And so technically, I still have a BBVA account, so this is pretty cool to see. Um, ING is on here. They've got, I'm sure some of these are European that I just don't recognize them. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's great to see that you know 35 banks are coming together and trying to make a difference and that's where it all starts we've even got one from uh australia here that it looks like so national australia bank so really cool to see the diversity uh you know of portfolios so let's go ahead and take a look at the executive summary i think this is a great way to sort of start this research so there's a quote here by Mark Carney, who is a UN Special Envoy on Climate Action. And it says, Achieving net zero emissions will require a whole economic transition. Every company, every bank, every insurer, and investor will have to adjust their business models. 
Now, the role of the banking industry in tackling climate change is very clear. It says that banks are needed to support the low-carbon transition through lending and financing decisions and through the helping of their clients' transition. By setting scenario-based targets, banks signal to all stakeholders that the change is both necessary and feasible. And this is the task that's been taken on the 38 signatories to the Collective Committee to Climate Action, the CCCA, the largest coalition of banks making ambition commitments in the run-up to COP26. These signatory banks from all across six continents, representing, as we mentioned, the U.S. $50, $15 trillion, have stepped forward committing to the most ambitious goal of reaching the net zero of 2050, this report provides a snapshot of the progress made in the first year since launching CCCA. So let's go ahead and get into the report. So it says steps that are being taken by the 38 banks. Assessing portfolio alignment. So it looks like most importantly assessing portfolio alignment is one of the initial steps which signatories are taking where they have to compare progress to peers and tracking their progress to contributions over time. They have to effectively allocate capital to support real economic emission reductions. So this is kind of generic. Um, the next one it says here is financial products. Okay, so we sort of talked on that. I'm not, I'm not going to get into those. Let's go into the collection activities in year one. So it says that in CCCA's first year, in addition to developing and implementing measures within their banks, the 38 signatories work closely together to support each other on the a journey to assess and align their portfolios with the Paris Agreement. So the CCCA banks worked in two groups. One shared expertise about existing approaches and methodologies, and one to establish harmonized practice and agree to common standards for setting and reporting on climate alignment targets. Within these working groups, sub-working groups with specific regional and sectoral focus met regularly. And in the third quarter of 2020, based on knowledge gaps identified, technical clinics provided signatories with key knowledge and support to advance their own assessments and of target setting for portfolio management. These clinics focused on target setting and the SBTI-FI approach. Not sure what that is, but the PACTA methodology the climate scenarios and challenges specifics to relating to real estate and agricultural sectors. In the first year, signatories have delivered their commitment to publish these measures that are taking alignment to portfolios with international climate goals. These include developing methodologies for assessment portfolio alignment, exclusion policies for sectors such as coal, and strategies to reduce carbon emissions. These are all outlined in the report. Okay, so that's sort of a general, uh, you know, breakdown and then they really get into the report starting so we're on page 16 of the report of 51 and this is where they talk about assessing portfolio alignment so this section is like three pages so far and it looks like they break it in uh they put in a case study which is really nice overall it's like six pages five pages so then they get into financial products and services so yeah, I think overall, this is a really interesting report. And once again, I don't really want to bore you with the details, but I want to make these two reports known. The whole point of this podcast isn't always to just spoon feed you guys the information. I think there's too much to sort of take in. And that's why I'm trying this sort of, uh, you could say, riffing 
approach where I'm just talking to you guys and, and kind of going over what I'm seeing. I think that it's good to see the transparency, negative or positive, and that's what I wanted to present to you guys and make you guys aware of just by clicking on this, you know, this episode. I really appreciate you guys for listening, and I wanted to sort of wrap this up and talk about my personal thoughts on everything in the outro. So let's go ahead and transition into talking about our Discord community. Hello, is anybody out there? I want you to be a part of the community that we're building here on the Carbon Neutral Podcast. There's nothing like connecting with like-minded people, and especially in a time where human contact isn't exactly common. The link for the Discord invite is in the show notes. In this group, we're going to have a discussion forum, and we're going to create many other threads based on your interests and your desire to be a part of it all. Signing up is free, and it only takes a few minutes. I look forward to seeing you on the other side. All right, so final thoughts. This was potentially a longer episode. We're going to see how it ends up coming out. I'm hoping that this was valuable for you guys. It was a little dry maybe at times, and it's just a matter of me sort of trying to figure out how I want to handle these podcast episodes. I really appreciate you guys for listening and and taking the time. I wanted to get this thing out. I didn't want to procrastinate. So with that said, I really think that this is a topic that we're going to be revisiting over and over again on this podcast. So this is just, like I always say, the tip of the iceberg or just the beginning of, you know, evaluating financial institutions. And I'm hoping that the CCCA puts out more than just annual reports. Uh, We can get into the nitty gritty over time. But the big picture of this episode, like I said, was just to make sure that you were aware of what your money is being used uh, for because obviously your banks are not going to tell you this and I think there's definitely a need to explore the private sector a little bit more too because they don't get, you know, they're not let off the hook just because they are not as well covered. It's, It's similar to public and private companies. You know, we look at public companies and really get on them for the way that they go about their business and, you know, the different processes, whatever the case may be. So, uh, you know, I guess the biggest example of one right now, you look at the stock market in general, what what was happening uh, with GameStop, right? We're also critical of whoever it is, Robinhood, all of these different public companies, but private sector de- definitely needs to be held just as accountable. So all that to be said, I'd really encourage you guys to think about where your money is being held right now and what your money is being used for, even though it doesn't feel like your money is being taken out of the account because, I mean, it is and it isn't. Uh, It's a very complicated subject in itself, how savings accounts work and how banks can use your money. But I really appreciate you guys for listening to this episode. Please make sure to give it a five-star review. Uh, really really help the podcast and remember that every time you leave a five star review you plant a tree next week I have not decided the topic 
So you're going to come in sort of just figuring it out with me. Um, so I wanted to touch on the bank segment, the bank sector this week. There might be something sort of related to that. I have a feeling I can tie in something, but I just haven't had the time to think about it. So thank you again so much. I don't want to ramble too much. Thank you again. And we will talk next week.